I think being in the habit of looking longer and looking more carefully and more slowly has enabled me to react in similar ways in other parts of my life. And, and I think it's a richer life for that. I'm Nathan Foster, and welcome to Life with God, a Renovare podcast, a place for unhurried and thoughtful conversations about interactive life with God. Today, we continue with conversations around practices that help in times of challenge, gifts that sustain. And today, we're exploring the gift of creating. Twice a year, Renovari puts together a seasonal printed booklet. Our spring 2023 publication was written by Rochelle Parham. It's titled True Impressions. The cover has a unique blue image of a plant. It's a cyanotype and produced by Sally Kendrick. Cyanotype is one of the oldest photographic processes. It involves exposing UV light to a surface treated with iron salts. Cyanotypes are distinctive for their unique blue hues. It's also the origin of the term blueprint. Apparently, it's a fairly simple process, yet it produces quite stunning images. But what really fascinated me was Sally's story. She's quick to point out that she's not an artist. Rather, cyanotype is a result of a playful and prayerful practice of exploring nature with God. And there's something uniquely fun about this conversation. It's her ordinariness and the purity of her creative process, her faithful obedience to chasing beauty and wonder. You can find the images on the resource page of our website under books. I spoke with Sally from her home in the Washington, D.C. area. Sally, do you, do you see yourself as an artist? It's not a word I've ever applied to myself. It's It's been a funny thing to have other people start applying it to me, for sure. <laughs> Do you wear it well? It's a work in progress, let's say. <laughs> I am learning to lean into the joy that artistic practice brings. And I think that's about as far as I'm willing to go with that right now. <laughs> How did you begin cyanotype? Did I say that right? Cyanotype? Yes, cyanotype. How, how did you get into this? So I had a sunprint kit as a kid. That was my first introduction to it. They're still out there in the world. You can buy one on Amazon for 15 bucks, I think now. Um, and that, so that was my first introduction to it. And then I didn't do anything else with it for a long time, for years. And then COVID hit and I was taking long walks in the park near my house and I realized at some point that I was coming back from those walks, having not noticed anything about where I was or what I had seen or what was going on around me. Basically, I had taken my pacing outside. It was pacing with extra vitamin D, <laughs> which was not really ideal or even terribly helpful. So I picked cyanotype back up at that point as a way of giving myself a, a little mission on these long walks to force myself to pay a little bit more attention. And it worked. Um, I started seeing things that I found beautiful around me. My area isn't particularly known for sweeping vistas, 
But lo and behold, there was beauty around me, and I began to notice it, and I began to appreciate it. And so my ongoing interest in cyanotype as a medium is really mostly born out of the practice of attentiveness that it has helped me to cultivate. How did it help you cultivate that? So cyanotype is a funny thing because the the things that seem beautiful that you notice in the natural world, a, a camellia blossom or a particularly striking, you know, fall leaf when the maple leaves are turning red, something like that, that's not necessarily going to cyanotype well. The color isn't going to translate. Cyanotypes are all just blue and white. And a camellia blossom is too thick to make for a particularly beautiful pattern. It's unless you put some real effort into it, really just going to look like a white blob on the page at the end of the process. So cyanotype specifically has sort of forced me to cultivate an attentiveness to a type of beauty and delicacy that maybe is not striking when you pass it on a, on a walk in the park or on the sidewalk on the way home from work. But that beauty is there. And so the challenge of the cyanotype process has encouraged me to pay more attention to those more subtle beauties around me. So when you walk, what what does that process look like for you now? These days, it's Saturday morning walks, uh, cell phone and earbuds, music, podcasts, all strictly banned. Um, <laughs> and it's just about, about being present in the space. It's not speed walking or power walking. It's certainly not a run. It's about giving myself time and space to be attentive and focused on the environment that I find myself in. Um, and, and that attentiveness demands that I let go of some of the worrying thoughts and the processing and the planning that maybe are my native instinct elsewhere in my life. It forces a slowness and an intentionality that I wouldn't necessarily otherwise cultivate or that would be difficult for me to cultivate otherwise. When you find interesting things, what is that like for you when you something catches your eye? I've been doing this for, I mean, since COVID, so th three years now, and I still don't always know if something's going to work. I have a better idea now. I have a better sense of what might print well and be beautiful, but I still don't know. So it's still a little bit of like intrigue and excitement with a question mark at the end. And then there's a process of, you know, taking it back to my apartment and pressing it or cleaning it or preparing it, whatever that looks like for the specific item in question. And then printing with it and just seeing what happens, how it responds, what how much time it takes to get a beautiful print, if there are any other tweaks that are needed to bring out the delicacy or the beauty that's in the original. Why are you wanting to find beauty? I tend to think of the beauty as an invitation. I, I want to say this wisely. In moments of, of struggle or uncertainty, in my life, I don't always know what the kindness or the provision of God will look like in that circumstance. 
And so I don't always know what to hope for or what to be looking for or what the outcome will be. But I do know, for example, if I'm if I have a hair and feather that I've found that I'm making a print of, what I do know, what I can see physically in front of me is that this feather is beautiful. And it's an invitation to to draw me back to a God who has said that he cares about individual sparrows. And and that is an invitation too to circle back to the words of the psalmist who said, return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. And so that doesn't answer the question about what the kindness and provision of God will look like in this specific question in my life that I'm struggling with. But it does serve as an invitation to fall back into trust in his presence. Mm. So you're going on a walk. You're looking for just interesting pieces to take back and play with different prints in that somehow that opens up to a trust provision in God? For me, it does. Yeah. <laughs> I think my my inclination, you know, I suspect I'm not alone in this, but my inclination is always to overcomplicate, right? If there's something I'm struggling with, then I'm sure there's a perfect book that I should be reading or a litany that I should be praying or a discipline that I should be undertaking. And those things are all good. They all have their place. But their place is firmly rooted in an openness to the presence of God and a willingness to receive the love of God. And jumping straight into the perfect book or the ideal litany or the most um, helpful discipline doesn't get me anywhere if I'm not working from that foundation. And so the focus and the attentiveness and the stillness that these walks and the the discipline of trying to create prints from little items that I find, that practice forces that stillness and intentionality, which creates an opportunity for falling back into presence and rest. I like this. I like this a lot. How do you keep it pure as you're making prints and becoming better? And and, uh, how do you keep this pure? It's not a consistent thing, I would say. It's easy to get swept up in the details of the process. But the items themselves draw me back to the simplicity, the core of the question, for one thing. The feather is still beautiful whether I've managed to make a good print out of it or not that particular day. That's something. And and frankly, the fact that it has me outside and still and quiet in a place of beauty and rest is also just a very practical, tangible corrective in that way. How is your work of finding pieces uh, it's just because I almost picture like a little kid, like I picture like grade school kids on a scavenger hunt, right? Looking for an interesting leaf or, you know, twig or whatnot. Um, do, do you, has it have that kind of enthusiasm? Oh, absolutely. Joy for you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I have friends and family who will tell you the amount of 
giddy squealing I did over finding a patch of sensitive ferns near my house because <laughs> sensitive ferns are awesome and they're great for what I do. And there, there was, in fact, a certain amount of giddy squealing about that. Yes. Yes. I love it. And I'm not ashamed <laughs> of that. <laughs> This process of finding and then printing and working with, um, how does that tie in or does that tie in to prayer? I think it absolutely does tie into prayer. For me, it ties most directly into the more contemplative and meditative aspects of prayer. And in some ways, it's, it's almost more of a training ground for that than anything else because it's encouraging the the stillness and the attentiveness that are prerequisites or um, necessary for the development of a contemplative prayer practice. So even if I'm not actively praying while I'm on the hunt for sensitive ferns, I am still developing the habits that are needed for prayer. And and that is a huge for me at least a hugely necessary course corrective to the broader sort of overstimulated oversaturated world that I find myself in. We share something in common. Uh, I really like looking at things in nature and just pausing and you know really taking my time. And one of the things I notice is that. Um, when I come to a space, the longer I sit and look around, the more I see. And it's just, I mean, the other day I was with a friend for know, like an hour in this moss bed and I just kept finding new things. And, and it was almost like the beauty went down the little beauty tunnel. Uh, do you have the same experience where just more things open up the more you pay attention? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. The more things open up, the more you pay attention. I think that would be true no matter what I was doing. I could be, you know, photographing with an iPhone and that would still absolutely be true. The bonus of cyanotype has been that it's required attentiveness to different kinds of beauty that has sort of added an extra layer of appreciation to that experience for me. Because you're not looking for perfect pieces. Absolutely not. Right. Flaws are part of it. Yeah, they are they are part of it. They add intrigue and a question mark, maybe sometimes. I have a beautiful set of ferns that I've been playing with lately that I I don't know, like I would love for a, a biologist to tell me what's going on here. I'm assuming there's some interesting genetic thing that has happened to this particular community of ferns where a bunch of them develop into spirals rather than growing straight up. And they're fascinating and they're beautiful. And I wouldn't have noticed that if I hadn't been sitting in a patch of ferns looking for specimens to print with. <laughs> Love it. Having this, I mean, it's like a hobby of sorts. Is that, is that how you describe your? Yeah. yeah. Um, just kind of when you step back, how has, well, maybe has, and if so, how, th- has this practice kind of impacted your larger life? I think it has in several ways. Um, It has certainly impacted the way I interact with the natural world. I'm just always looking for things to print with. 
now. It's become an instinct. And interestingly, it has also impacted friends and family in the same way. I have folks who will now bring me feathers (laughs) and ferns that they have found or tell me that they're on a hunt for a specific something that they would like to see me make a friend with. And I love that it has spread outward in that way. That's just been a total unexpected joy of this process for me. So there's that just very practical, concrete piece of it. And then there's also the fact that I keep circling back to, which is this habit of attentiveness and stillness that I do see permeating my life far beyond the reaches of this this little hobby that I've developed. I think being in the habit of looking longer and looking more carefully and more slowly has enabled me to react in similar ways in other parts of my life. And and I think it's a richer life for that, to be honest. Could you say more how your reaction with the natural world affects other parts? I think that the habit of moving slowly and thoughtfully through the natural world is is something that I have started to see myself take up a little bit in other areas of my life as well. And so I've tried to translate that habit into being more thoughtful in conversation with friends or in how I interact with family or in how I pray about a specific situation. That way of being in the world is something that I am finding um, transformative in other areas of my life as well. When you're with something of beauty and you're taking the time to really lean into it, what does that feel like for you? There's a way of being present in those moments that I don't always experience in other areas of my life. It is a wonderful thing to have the time and the mental space to be just really delighted about the way raindrops have collected on a ginkgo leaf. (laughs) And maybe that sounds silly. Maybe that sounds ephemeral. But there's such a richness in seeing the world that way. And that doesn't make the, the challenges or the struggles or the problems that consume my life or anybody else's life outside of that moment less important. But... I I do find myself believing that moments like that are reminders of the care and providence of God within those larger, more overwhelming areas of our lives as well. You work in a bookstore. I do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, a, a used an antiquarian. Your- Okay, so like old books? Yeah, for the most part. I'm not sure that's going to be super interesting for podcasts. Yeah, this, I'm going somewhere with it, just a bigger sure. picture. Yeah, tell me what you do. What what, what do your, your days look like? Yeah, so I, I work in sort of our more antiquarian department, so special collections and appraisals. Um, that means that if we have a collection come in that needs appraisal, then I am sometimes involved in that process. And if something is really old or in a language that isn't written in the Latin alphabet, then it often becomes my problem. So that also has introduced me to a world of beauty that I had no idea of. Say more. 
So we encounter books in the modern world as consumables, essentially. They are fairly cheaply printed and cheaply produced and cheaply sold. And that's wonderful in that it means that most people have access to a library. That's that's awesome and an extraordinary gift in the process of moving in that direction with print culture. We have lost some of the extraordinary beauty and skill that were once integral to that tradition. And so the stuff that crosses my desk is often printing from the 17th, 18th, and sometimes even the 16th century that is a testament to the energy and effort and artistry that were integral to print culture for centuries. And there's an intentionality and a care to that that I find really admirable. What do you find beautiful in old books? Old books, really old books, 16th century stuff especially, are so meticulously designed. The the amount of detail and energy that goes into the way each page is printed is extraordinary. It's mind-blowing to a modern person. Each letter is individually laid out um, and hand-carved ornaments are worked into that design so that you have borders and headers and dropped capital letters at the beginnings of chapters and paragraphs that are all ornately engraved or designed or decorated in some way. So so there's all this ornamental work that's going on. And then often, in addition to that, the way the text itself is laid out is intended to be very beautiful. For a long time, we had this tradition of ending especially larger sections of a work, so the end of a chapter or the end of a book, the text would be laid out so that it ended in a funnel shape rather than just, you know, you get Mm. to the end of a paragraph and the line just stops halfway across the page. And that takes skill. If you're laying out individual letters one at a time, the amount of energy you put into making that funnel shape perfect is, that's a a pretty time-intensive process. And so the the care and dedication that you see go into even something as simple as the way you end a chapter is pretty extraordinary. What would it take for someone to to do a book like that today? Like to print it in that care and fashion? It can be done. As far as I'm aware, there's one company that, that does the whole process from creating the type to binding the book. And their products can cost thousands of dollars. It's so fascinating to me how many things that we've gone backwards with, or like we think we're moving forward with, but really we've lost an incredible art. And and I'm not taking issue with contemporary print culture. I oh, have a large oh, library do. that I would not <laughs> give up for anything. Um, but I think I think there's something to be remembered about the preciousness that we used to associate with books. There's a possibility that we've lost something with the ephemerality that now is a part of that culture. Okay. I'm going to play with that. There's some good stuff in there, but I just, uh, I like that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what, how that will shape up. Well, I don't either, but I find it quite interesting. So that's, uh, there's something to the, um, 
both of these, your professional life and then your kind of personal piece, is that they're just appreciating beauty and noticing and tending to, caring for, is that? Yeah, that sounds about right. The other thing that I will say about antiquarian book culture that I think matters is that historically, when we printed books, we would print them so that you'd come to the end of the page, and then below the last line of text, you would print the first syllable of the the first word that would appear on the next page. And that syllable would be duplicated. It would appear at the bottom of the last page and as the very first syllable on the next page. And the reason you would do that is because it made it easier to read aloud from the book. It smooths that transition. And so the book is now not just something that you're reading for yourself in the solitude of your bedroom or whatever. It's something that's being shared and engaged with communally. And there's a richness to that as well that I think we've lost. Yeah, because those early books, they were read aloud, right? People didn't just go off by themselves and read. Often so. It's interesting. There's a community piece there. And I absolutely love that that your work with the Cenotypes has had a community piece, like that it's connected you with others. Yeah, that's been a treat. That's been a total treat. (laughs) Sally, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Thank you so much. And that was Sally Kendrick. You can see her work on Instagram at Turkey Creek Prints. That's Turkey Creek Prints. Again, you can find the images she did for us on the resource page on our website, renovare.org. There you can also download a PDF of the booklet for free or purchase a paper copy. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to Life with God, a Renovare podcast. We remain grateful for all of you who helped make this work possible. You can support Renovare and this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org slash donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find a collection of thoughtfully curated articles, podcast webinars, online classes, as well as information on events and our institute on our website, renovare.org. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. And until next time, be well, friends. Be well.